Welcome to the Antmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with Sam Lieberman, as always. Sam, how are you? I'm great. Excited to talk about this. These thrilling two chapters. Yes, and that's not sarcasm. No, no, th- th- this is good shit. This is like, it. it I, you were saying this before we started recording, but it's cinematic. It it really is. It's uh, so so. Let's not uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're talking about chapters seven and eight of the Silmarillion. Chapter seven is titled "Of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor," and chapter eight is titled "Of the Darkening of Valinor." So we're yeah, like uh, Sam quoted me as saying, which is true. This is very. Uh, Get the the entire time reading. This is only about probably ten pages or so in my copy of of the book, and the whole time reading it, I was thinking, I see the movie in my head when I'm reading it. It's that sort of prose. He's not quite a filmmaker, but there's only one person who 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 I'm confident could could adapt this effectively. And who's that? Uh, Hideo Kojima. It's uh, Nor- Norman Reedus in Valinor. Yeah, I should also emphasize to the listeners that me and me and Kenny are. Our our love for Death Stranding is unironic. Oh my god, it, Death Stranding is like top three games of all time for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm not even joking. So underrated. I don't. I think it may be the only game that has ever made me cry. Yeah. The 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 final cutscenes are were very emotional, and it's it's I, it, it's excellent. I've cried to a few walking simulators, like like Edith Finch type <laughs> games. That's that's also true. Wait, <laughs> you're not joking? No, I'm not. Like I. Like, like playing Gone Home when I was like 14, like, dude. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. You said walking simulators and I, for whatever reason, I pictured crying at like the majesty of Microsoft Flight Simulator. No, no, no. Walking <laughs> simulator is like, it's actually a derisive term also applied to Death Stranding, but also like uh, a certain type of like narrative, not heavy gameplay game. Mm. It's like, I'm using, I'm, I'm using some real outdated lingo. Me and Kenny aren't like capital G gamers anymore. We still play games, but I don't know like. I play like a few a year. I don't really know the, the current discourse. <laughs> anyway, uh, so where we left off last time, things were going pretty good over in uh, Amman. So that's where we start out uh, with chapter seven. Like I said, it's of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor. And we start out here. Uh, I guess we should probably say beforehand, recall that uh, we're, we're really going to be talking about the Noldor for most of these episodes from now on because they're the the tribe that sees the most sort of uh, action. Uh, and um, recall that the king of the Noldor is this guy Finway, F-I-N-W-E, with an umlau over the E, I believe. And uh, Finway has three sons. The eldest is Feanor. And then uh, with a uh, a different woman, Finway has two other sons, Fingolfin and Finarfin. Um, and you just have to get used to the like silly names that kind of sound similar and inevitably I get the, all the various F names mixed up. We should also recall to, to the dear listener that, uh, the, the two wives was not a result of divorce, which of course Tolkien and his religious beliefs would never, uh, glorify <laughs> or reference in any capacity. Um, but rather, uh, uh, he was a, he was widowed. The distinction that that Feanor is not a full brother of Fingolfin and Finarfin is is very relevant uh, to the story. Sam, you might you might remember is Fain, is was Finway's first wife like a Maiar or something or no? It was just another Noldor. I don't remember. No, she was just another Noldor, but she was like special. Okay, yeah, because because it's certainly the case that like. 
Feanor, you get the sense that he has like kind of some more like powers than Fingolfin and Finarfin. It's also stated that he was just sort of like that and that he was so like that, that in the womb, he sapped up all of her energy so that by the time that she gave birth to him, she had none left. That's right. That's right. Because the fire burned so bright in his soul. That's right. It's been so long since we talked about this. I, I forgot. I forget these little details. Um, I did, I did some rereading of all the previous chapters to prep. I've found so many new coffee shops. In the District of Columbia, which I, which I now live. That's an update since the previous podcast. Yes, yes. I, uh, I'm excited to watch the Wizards uh, lose uh, to the Celtics. You know, if I wanted to see a Wizard lose, I would read The Two Towers. Oh, so true. <laughs> Maybe Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole Saruman, little connection there. Please, please keep that in there. There's like a few people who will find that extremely funny. Now, now remember also that uh, the uh, that that Amon is lit up by the two trees, um, which which wax and wane on a cycle, not unlike uh, not unlike the sun and moon, but um, they are uh, th- they are what give light to to Amon. They're very beautiful. Uh, uh, Varda, I believe, Sam was that the the, yep. the, the, the yeah who who. Uh, pours out all of her uh, all of her uh, her energy into into creating them so they're these sort of divine objects uh and um Feanor uh is is thinking like you know you know it'd be great is if we could preserve uh the light of the trees and also uh quote the glory of the blessed realm uh if we could preserve that forever if we could kind of you know Take all that b- majesty and kind of put it, you know, put it somewhere so it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go bad. We we want to have this forever to represent, you know, how uh, how how good things are, basically. And it's it's worth noting that that I mean, one might ask themselves, wouldn't the trees also stay forever? But but Tolkien writes, for Feanor, being come to his full might was filled with a new thought, or it may be that some shadow of foreknowledge came to him of the doom that drew near. And he pondered how the light of the trees, the glory of the blessed realm, might be preserved imperishable. So possibly he had some awareness that uh, bad things were destined for the trees. And it's worth Mm. mentioning, we've said this before, but Tolkien uses doom in the more traditional sense of the term that just means fate. But uh, in this context, it takes on both... uh, meanings uh in doom as we think of it today and doom as he uses it that's correct yeah so uh feanor uh this is a you know very important moment in the 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 cosmology here feanor creates these three jewels called the silmarils which is where the name of the book comes from uh and uh these three jewels he he crafts tolkien writes that the uh uh Nobody knows what the material is that he used to create them, but they were sturdier than than diamonds, and they, you know, they they were they were brighter than any other uh, gem or or jewel uh, that that anyone had ever seen, and they contain the light of the trees. They don't uh, they don't have like any magic powers, I don't believe, or anything like that. But I mean, I I would say that that Tolkien sort of explicitly is like says that. His magic system, which, I mean, he would hate that term. That's such a, like, modern fantasy thing. But he doesn't have a magic system, but magic is rather um, the complete connection between art and will. And, like, instances of, of magic 
or magical things in the legendarium are just, um, you know, instances of something or someone creating something where there's no barrier between the will to create and the possibility and or subcreate, I should say, and the possibility of doing that thing. It's like the full realization of art. So in yeah. that sense, yeah. it is sort of magic following, you know, Tolkien's definition of magic. Yes, yes. The, it is the the peak form of subcreation. It, it's that Feanor sets out to create these things, these jewels that capture the light of the trees, and he does so so perfectly uh, that um, much of the next, you know, hundreds of years or whatever will, uh, in large part, be structured around fighting over these jewels there. I'm glad that you, you, you said all that as well, because there's, there's one thing I was thinking of when I, when I was reading this part. Um, and, and Tolkien makes a little bit more explicit later, but I was kind of thinking that there is a bit of a, um, a bit, a bit of a dialectic, if you will, happening, which is that this is both a, a sort of expression of pure subcreation, just like you were saying, and in that sense, it, it, it's magical. But it's also, I, I think Tolkien is is saying this is also a case of a corporeal being, right? Whether it be elf or or, or man or or whatever, who is um, unjustly, I guess. Uh, taking the power of Iluvatar or of the the Valar, and the Valar's power comes through Iluvatar, and sort of taking that as their own and 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 claiming it as their own. I think that creating the Silmarils is portrayed as almost a step too far in the in the joy of subcreation because it's it's almost uh, it's almost co opting some of the the glory, I guess, of the, of the light of the trees. And it, I was thinking, for example, of not that Feanor is destroying the light of the trees, but that I think that he's in the way that someone who desecrates the environment is going a step beyond just using it, but not causing harm. I, I don't know. Do you, do you kind of follow? I, I thought the exact same thing, um, and it it goes really closely to something sort of themes two pages later but what i wrote down was uh that he's usurping the divine uh monarchic hierarchy exactly he he forgets his place his role right it's and it's it's the it's the folly of every tolkien character who who you know it has who who is portrayed not as a you know clear sort of hero or protagonist right is that he's misjudging his role and he thinks that um he has the, like the right basically to do what he will with this light that was only be, was only able to be brought into existence by the Valar through uh Iluvatar. Yeah, that there I mean, if you recall, you know, Tolkien's biography or or Carpenter's biography of Tolkien, Tolkien believed on a personal level that sort of every person has a role in society that they have to fill out. Um and that's also informed by his sort of staunch belief in a very hierarchical structure of society and also his sort of paradoxical belief in a monarchy, which I say is, uh, you know, sort of paradox. He's also sort of an anarchist, but he believes in this sort of monarchic ordering of society where from the top down, everyone has a role. And um, Feanor is, is creating something perfect. 
And you're not supposed to be capable of creating something perfect if you're not God, or at the very least, um, a being closer to God. Um, who, yeah, who is sort of given that ability. And although, uh, you know, the the elves, like men, are created in the image of, well, not in the image of, but but created by Luvatar, and thus in some sense in the image of him, to be a certain way, and they are his children, they also do have a specific rule, and he, ro- role, and uh, Feanor is, is overstepping that. And he can't handle it, because if you step outside of that role... Um, in Tolkien's ideology and, and try to accrue responsibilities or power or even just uh, affect things larger than what you are supposed to affect, um, you it will end up ruining you. And I would say the inversion of that is sort of what we see in Lord of the Rings, where you have the sort of smallest people in a literal sense and a figurative sense, the most humble people in The Hobbits, who do big things, but not because they want to. I mean, they do it reluctantly, but because the role is thrust upon them by larger forces like Gandalf, who is a Maiar, who is a more divine being. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Uh, I, I think that's totally, totally correct. I think that what I was trying to get at, what you you made the point about uh, creating something that is perfect which I, I think is exactly sort of what I was trying to get at, is that Feanor doesn't or or shouldn't, I guess, have the ability or the right to create something that's truly perfect, which the Silmarils, I, I, I think, are. Uh, and that, like you said, that will come not only to ruin Feanor, but but kind of uh, kind of everything. It's It's almost a sort of original sin, the creation of the Silmarils, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Tolkien writes that uh, Feanor, he, Feanor's heart was bound to them, so he he makes these Silmarils, and he's like, "Damn, these are sick. I love these." But Tolkien describes that it uh, it it, it, be, it comes to be quote a greedy love, and he doesn't let anyone other than his father and his seven sons look at the uh, look at the Silmarils, even 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 just look at them. Um, and and yes, he has seven sons. The sons of Feanor are always causing mischief. Getting up to goofy hijinks. And if, if you remember uh, several episodes ago when Sam and I talked about uh, the Baron and Luthien story, uh, two of the characters uh, who are, I, I believe they, they, they kidnap Luthien and take her to, to Nargothrond. Uh, those are two of uh, Feanor's sons. Um, just, just you know, real creeps. They're they're all it's just a big family of creeps, like real royal families. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not all creeps. Some of them are less bad than others. I, I would I would argue that some of them are sort of like tragic heroes. Uh, some of the other ones are just fucking creeps, though. The ones certainly the ones that uh, abduct Luthien are are real creeps. Yeah, yeah, they they have they have heavy sort of Habsburg vibes. I I don't picture Feanor's sons as having the jaw. No, no, they're 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 supposed to all look like fucking chads. So there was a quote that that I thought was really encapsulated uh, what we were talking about with uh, Feanor becoming greedier and greedier over the light contained in the the Silmarils and of the Silmarils themselves. Tolkien writes, "Quote: He seldom remembered now that the light within them was not his own." And I think that that really sums up what what we're saying here, right? The, what makes the Silmarils beautiful? Yes, he's the craftsman that that created these jewels. But what makes the jewels beautiful is the light within them, which uh, Feanor did not and could not 
create, but he forgets that fact, and he says, I made these, these are mine, and look how beautiful they are. And then there's another, there's another guy who also thinks that they're, they're beautiful, who's also like, who, a, another guy who loves gems, a Drake-esque figure, you could say. <laughs> uh, now, Kenny, who is this other person who lusts for the Silmarils? I, I presume that you're talking about our friend Melkor. And I, I would also say you use the word, but Tolkien also uses it. Uh, he says that Melkor lusts for them. And I, I found that to be an interesting choice of language. And I think that uh, we're, I'm going to get to that later, too. But he describes Melkor several times as lusting after the Silmarils. Any use of sexual language is negative. Um, yes. <laughs> and yes. the only portrayals of anything sexual in nature that aren't negative are uh, intercourse for the explicit purpose of procreation. Yeah, I think I think it is true. And I, I don't even nece- I don't think I really take the use of lusts here. I think it it's more of like a like a sexual like implication. Or connotation. Yeah, it's not supposed to di- directly be that sort right, of. Right, like, but, but I don't yeah. think he's literally horny for gems. Yeah, um, I, well, I mean, okay, but who wouldn't be, though? But, true. <laughs> but no, but uh, I think that, um, I mean, you do, all, Melkor is also notably horny. You get that in the Baron and Luthien story. Yes, he is. That 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 he is horny and and rapey. Like, he's a real creep in the Baron and Luthien story. Uh, but I just think he keeps, Tolkien keeps saying that, that Melkor is lusting for the gems. So, you know, what does any guy do? who wants gems really bad. Just like anyone would do, I think we all understand this, he, he starts to spread lots of rumors and sow division among the Noldor. I mean, who hasn't? Spreading rumors about the gems. Uh, when Finway dies or, or retires or whatever, I guess Finway won't die, but when he, you know, steps aside eventually, Feanor is supposed to become the king of the Noldor because he's the eldest. Um, Melkor convinces Feanor uh, that fin- Fingulfin is going to, uh, is going to usurp Finway. And cast Feanor out. And meanwhile, Fingolfin and Finarfin are hearing through the grapevine that when Feanor becomes king, he'll drive them out. So Melkor is just spreading these lies to make the family fight amongst themselves, just hoping that this fighting and in the, in the, in the division, which he also wants just for its own sake, uh, because he 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 you know thrives on chaos. Uh, he also was hoping that through all of this fighting, he'll somehow come into possession of the Silmarils. There's also a great line here that I want to just read out loud because it's so just like beautiful. But um, describing Melkor spreading these lies, Tolkien writes, But he that sows lies in the end shall not lack of a harvest, and soon he may rest from toil and deed, while others reap and sow in his stead. Um, Which is just beautiful in its own right, but I also think that gets at the politics in some sort of capacity where... The the lies are a sort of they're not just bad, but they're also bad because they are they're idle. You have others doing the work for you. Right. And they implicate others. And even I don't think that's implied here, but there's also lots of cases where others don't even know that they're implicated. And this is getting to that. There's as he, you know, Tolkien continues and we get more descriptions of Melkor spreading these lies. When he saw that many leaned towards him, Melkor would often walk among them, and amid his fair words, others were woven, so subtly that many who heard them believed them in recollection that they arose from their own thought. I think there's a little something here. I mean, it's sort of a, I don't want to, it's, there's almost something a little Straussian, where, (laughs) bro brought up Strauss. (laughs) 
But no, but there is where, on the one hand, in, you know, Tolkien's work, there's a lot of, you know, he, he invokes sort of esoteric knowledge and wisdom a lot. Someone like Gandalf, one of the reasons they're so powerful and cool and badass and epic and stuff is because they are so wise and able to, you know, esoterically study knowledge and uncover hidden meaning and deep, profound truths. You know, he spends years in the library at Gondor to find out about the origin of the One Ring. But the other part of um, sort of the Straussian uh, logic of esoteric study, and this really comes from Maimonides in his introduction to uh, The Guide to the Perplexed, where Maimonides warns that, you know, there's really hidden esoteric meaning in this, but no one's really going to be able to understand it unless you're like, spend years studying and are also ready. And you also shouldn't really try to understand it because those who aren't ready will be harmed by the the attempt to uncover the esoteric knowledge. And Strauss sort of builds off of that older um, line of thought of Maimonides and continues it in this ideology where someone trying to uncover esoteric knowledge or being lustful of esoteric knowledge is easily deceived into uh, believing lies or, in, in a modern context, conspiracy theories. You think you've uncovered the big truth. You know, secretly the New World Order, or in this case, the Valar, are like conspiring against you or your brothers or whatever, and you believe you've locked onto some esoteric truth and it ends up ruining everything. I think that everybody who is trying to understand the world in some way is drawn toward a, uh, a grand unifying theory or at least trying to, to craft one, right? Like Sam, I mean, one of our, one of our big, uh, hills that you and I will both die on is that, uh, the people who are most into conspiracy theories are often some of the smartest people just in terms of actual IQ. Well, IQ is flawed, but yes. Yeah. A lot of the people who are most drawn to conspiracy theories um, including a lot of the bad ones that end up causing a lot of harm in the world are deeply inquisitive and curious people who are capable of wrapping their brains around big complex topics, um, which can lead them to bad places or good places, but in a lot of cases, bad places. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes that the personality type that's drawn to it also may be uh, slightly paranoid or or have low social trust as as the a lot of the political scientists would say you know accepting some set of flawed assumptions usually and or not flawed assumptions but in a lot of cases flawed assumptions and then having both the ability and the will to follow those assumptions to their logical conclusion which is oftentimes to most people like ridiculous right like for example I think of like the people who are really, I mean, I know it's like the boring example of one, but the people who are really into QAnon, like there are some people who are like, they state some basic premise, right? Of, of like, you know, I think that the, you know, Pizzagate had some merits or something like that, you know, but then it's like, okay, well, if you're actually, if you really believe that, and then you follow that to its conclusion, you get to the point of where the most extreme QAnon people are. Those are just people who followed their assumptions all the way to the end. And to do that, like, you need the commitment and the will to be able to draw these complex threads in your head of what I think to a reasonable, 
I, I guess I sh- shouldn't say reasonable, but but to a, 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 an outside observer like samurai look like complete you know nonsense, and also often will will go into some real anti-Semitism. And- what you also have there a lot of times are people from the top who are knowingly spreading bullshit, like Melkor, right? like Melkor, um, through innocent uh, people, or in this case, elves who are caught in the crossfire and then using those elves um, as conduits to spread his deceit and his lies. It, exactly. Yeah. It, honestly, it there, I hadn't thought about this before we were, before you, you made this point, but it, it, I think it's a great point is that this really is like, a, 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 you know, lies that are of consequence, like the type that we're talking about with Melkor. Uh, it, it, it really is a, a case of like, Others do your work for you, whether they know it or not. Like you tell the lie or you, you know, you make an insinuation or something and then that spreads and it's, it's, it's really, it's really very insidious. I, I, I think that that's a a really, a really apt, uh, observation that you made. And what, what is one of the other, uh, conspiracies that, that Melkor spreads? (laughs) I'm I'm not sure what you're getting at. Oh, I was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm getting at men. I'm getting at the coming of men. Well, you 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 explain it. <laughs> yeah, as is the case with a lot of instances of uh, sort of conspiracies or uh, the danger of sort of esoteric thinking and reading too deeply into stuff. Is he takes something true, which is that men are going to show up on the scene, humans are going to come. There's a second race of children of Iluvatar, and. It's also something that is thus far unknown. Um, and when you combine the fact that none of the elves know about it yet, and it's true, it's really easy for him to spin this into a grand conspiracy. What Melkor does is he speaks to uh, the elves in secret of mortal men, seeing how the silence of the Valar might be twisted to evil. Those are the exact the exact phrasing. And he doesn't know much about men, <laughs> which I really like because he had paid small heed to the third theme of Iluvatar. Uh, recall that uh, men and elves were created out of this magical uh, orchestra, and he was interrupting the whole thing with his, like, shitty music and, like, blaring trumpets. So, like, he doesn't really get the gist of men, but because he was there when they when they, when they were created, uh, he knows that he, – he vaguely knows that it's going to happen, which is enough to convince um, a lot of – uh, the elves, and we should also say that the entire time we're only talking about the Noldor. Yeah. Um, like the Vanyar are beautiful and uncorrupted by ever- anything. Um, and the Teleri are like they're not even there. They're building ships, or they're like looking at like uh, the moon, you know. But um, yeah. So he he tells a bunch of Noldor this: uh, the men are going to supplant them, and the um, elves are intentionally trying to give them all the kingdoms in Middle Earth. Um. Which, it does so happen by the end of this entire thing in the end of Lord of the Rings, they do have all the kingdoms of Middle-earth, but that's because, well... The entire story of the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, the entire thing. But yeah, by spreading all these rumors, uh, the, the peace of Valinor was poisoned. Uh, the Noldor began to murmur against them, and many became filled with pride, forgetting how much of what they had and knew came to them in gift from the Valar. And this is, again, the sort of theme of everyone having a role and society being hierarchical and monarchic and divine, a divinely ordained, you know, monarchic society with God or Eru at the top. 
and the earthly rulers in the form of the Valar, who are still more divine, um, with with the the ultimate king on uh, the corporeal realm being Manwe, and these Noldor are being ungrateful. It's not really their fault. They're being corrupted by Melkor. But the result of this, sort of following Tolkien's worldview, um, is that they're forgetting that every good thing they have is the result of this divinely ordained monarchic hierarchy, and they're forgetting their place in it and their role in it, and they're rejecting it, and this spreads the seeds of discontent and ultimate uh, calamity uh, further into the soil of the society. Where we get uh, going forward from this is the, the the feud between Feanor on one hand and Fingolfin and Finarfin on the other. I, I should also say, Finway, the the actual king, is is more or less just siding with uh, Feanor in this. Uh, Feanor's his, his eldest son and his and his heir apparent. How the mighty have fallen! If you think about how much clout being a jeweler used to get you in society, <laughs> like back in the day, the guy who cut gems. You know, and it was bad gem carving. They didn't have advanced techniques back in like the Frankish dynasty. But the guy who cut gems for Charlemagne's crown was like the peak. Can anyone listen to this name of jeweler? I can, but that's because my brain has been poisoned when I was like 15 by like thousands of hours of like YouTube, like hip hop commentary. But like <laughs> broadly speaking, who even knows of any jewelers? Like, listen, you need a jewel, you go to Joe Schmo over at K Jewelers. In the words of Blade, uh, I'm a sleepwalk to the jeweler. Because that's how modern society thinks about it. <laughs> we barely even know who the jewelers are. But back then, it was like being the best jeweler. Because remember, the Silmarillion is an imagined history. This is set in the past of our world. Back then, uh, being the best jeweler was like literally infinite clout. Angels were like jealous of you. And your dad, who's also a king, is like, I'm just going to follow your command because you're so good at uh, making jewelry. <laughs> uh, so so anyway, uh, Finway, as as we were saying, uh, basically sides with Feanor because he thinks the Silmarils are sick and uh, Feanor is his heir apparent and, and everything. Uh, and then on the other hand, Fingolfin and, and Finarfin are getting very nervous about Feanor getting too big for his britches. Fingolfin goes to uh, a council of the Valar. Uh, Finway is also there with him. So Finway is not, it, it's not like he's a complete Feanor partisan. He still loves his other sons. While Fingolfin is talking to, to the Valar about how Feanor is, you know, he, he's going to bring ruin to, to Valinor, Feanor busts into the room. He knows that they're there. And, and this is how Tolkien writes it. But even as Fingolfin spoke, Feanor strode into the chamber, and he was fully armed, his high helm upon his head, and at his side a mighty sword. So it is, even as I guessed, he said. My half-brother would be before me with my father, in this as in all other matters. Then turning upon Fingolfin, he drew his sword, crying, Get thee gone, and take thy due place. Fingolfin bowed before Finway, and without word or glance to Feanor, he went from the chamber. But Feanor followed him, and at the door of the king's house he stayed him, and the point of his bright sword he set against Fingolfin's breast. See, half-brother, he said, 
This is sharper than thy tongue. Try but once more to usurp my place and the love of my father, and maybe it will rid the Noldor of one who seeks to be the master of thralls. These words were heard by many, for the house of Finway was in the great square beneath the Mindon, but again Fingolfin made no answer, and passing through the throng in silence, he went to seek Finarfin, his brother. Uh, Feanor taking his sword and and putting it against his brother, which is such a like it's such a dramatic moment, you know, and it, it's, it's it's so good, it's so symbolic of um, the strife because it's all like it's it starts out with with you know Feanor's I, what would be the word like his pride I guess of creating the Silmarils, his hubris, yes, hubris. That's the word I was looking for, but it's it's all sort of exacerbated and and, and it really is it becomes the massive you know problem because of melkor and and his deceit tolkien is using thrall in the original uh like norse context of the word which literally just means a slave and thraldom just means slavery it still in modern usage sort of means that but in a much less harsh way than saying you are enslaved he's speaking forcefully he's saying that his brother's trying to become the master of slaves he's accusing fingolfin of of going before the valar and uh trying to get them to kick feanor out because fingolfin wants to be king and uh, which is not what's happening as as we know not uh, at all and, and also he also feanor also makes the accusation you get the sense here that feanor while he's being misled by melkor and and melkor's minions that feanor also is extraordinarily paranoid because he says you've gotten my first of all he keeps saying my father which is already very pointed because he's also fingolfin's father but he he's saying you know you've you're here with my father who's against me here as in all things or whatever. And which we know is very much not the case. Finway generally, like I was saying before, sides with Feanor, but Feanor doesn't see it like that, obviously. He sees it as like everyone's conspiring against me, uh, which goes a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. You know, Fingolfin walks away and he goes back to Finarfin. They're very much sort of allies, the, those two, the two younger brothers. Uh, and then uh, the Valar Council... Um, so meets again. The Valar basically decide, okay, Feanor needs to leave uh, Valar for 12 years uh, because of this threat. Uh, because you, you, you drew your sword upon your brother, you have to leave for 12 years, and that's the punishment. Fingolfin says, quote, I will release my brother, meaning he's forgiven, he doesn't have to leave. And then this is a quote, but Feanor spoke no word in answer, standing silent before the Valar, then he turned and left the council and departed from Valmar. He's brooding. Yeah, he's, he, bro is so mad. So he leaves and he takes his seven sons. And importantly, he, Finway, also goes with him. I, I mean, there's no greater sign of Finway siding with Feanor over the others. Finway leaves with Feanor, which makes Fingolfin the king of the Noldor. And they build a giant horde in the hills and they put all their weapons and there are gems in there, and the Silmarils are locked in a chamber of iron. And now I imagine this sort of complex. We know that the Noldor love burrowing. They're a little dwarf-like. They like big uh, sort of cave-like halls. I'm sort of imagining this like the early artistic depictions of Osama bin Laden's hideout <laughs> before we actually saw what it was like. I had no idea where you were going going with that 
those completely deranged yeah. drawings that are just like this is where he is in Afghanistan. Like it's like a like basically it's like an underground palace. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> like homie like, did not have that. Like they just had to have him being in a cave, but it was like he's in a cave, but he also basically lives like in the Hamptons. Well, what he did have was internet. Uh, anime on DVDs. This is true. Yeah, this is real. Video games. And he was obsessed. You know, in some capacity, he's liked me because he was really into anime, professional basketball, and video games. And he, this is true, Osama bin Laden wrote an angry letter after LeBron James signed with the Heat and left the Cavs. That is, that is true. That is Who did he, did he send the letter to anyone? He said it to like ESPN or something. It was like anonymous. It was like, like an online comment. It wasn't like a physical letter, but he was like angrily being like, dude, like, like it was like an Instagram comment today. It was like, bro is not loyal, dude. I can't believe he would leave the Cavs. He also played Counter-Strike. Oh yeah, I knew that. I knew that. Were you planning on saying that? Well, like this entire time? Yes, actually. To be totally honest, I have a note. You can't see this, but I'll see the picture later. I have like a note in the page. That says Osama hideout. This <laughs> <laughs> was pre-planned the entire time. So Fanor and his kids and his dad and their giant horde of weapons and also all of their cool drip. They got all the gems. Recall, there's another guy who also really wants all of their gems. And that's Melkor. Right. And, and, and so far, everything's going according to plan for this guy. He's gotten like the most powerful like elf family like in a dispute. Things are starting to fracture. So Melkor shows up because he remembers talking to Feanor. And he's like, uh, you know, what about working with me? You know, the other Valar are trying to go after you. Um, and he's pondering whether or not he trusts him. He's like, hmm, what's this guy up to? And then Melkor makes a bad call. This is a reminder that the Valar are not actually God. They're divine. They're near all powerful, but they're not completely infallible. Because he makes a, a really bad error. He says... Here was a strong place and well-guarded, but I think not that the Silmarils will lie safe in any treasury within the realm of Valar. Misstep. Tolkien writes, This awoke a fire more fierce than he designed, and Feanor looked upon Melkor with eyes that burned through his fair semblance. Feanor immediately picks onto the fact that Melkor also wants the Silmarils, and immediately he turns against Melkor and shuns him away. From this moment onwards... Everything that Feanor and his sons do is not driven by working with Melkor at all. Which, which they never were working with Melkor. They were never working with him, but initially some of, of the stuff was sown by Melkor. Correct. But now, I mean, to some extent. But I, I do think that's an interesting distinction um, in the sort of way that the plot unfurls. We're going to now thank thank you for, for, for talking about that. Um, of course. This next chapter will be faster. It's it is it is absolute heat though. It's fire. Oh, it's incredible. The imagery is so strong. So okay, yeah. Chapter eight is called "Of the Darkening of Valinor." So at this point, Mel uh, Melkor, after having been shunned by Feanor, all that Bro wanted was those jewels. Melkor's like, you know what? I'm just gonna destroy all of it, but I don't have the power to destroy those trees. I need some help, and so he says, okay, I know someone for the job. 
and he goes into into the mountains and he goes into a, a cave. Now, if you remember from uh, the Return of the King, or from actually the I think in the book it's the Two Towers, but in the movie it's Return of the King. If you recall, Shelob, the giant spider, uh, there is a sort of spiritual predecessor to Shelob, uh, who is much greater and scarier and more powerful. Uh, her name is Ungoliant. There beneath the sheer walls of the mountains in the cold, dark sea, the shadows were deepest and thickest in the world, and there in Avathar, secret and unknown, Ungoliant had made her abode. The Eldar knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda, when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwë, and that in the beginning she was one of those that he corrupted to his service. But she had disowned her master, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness, and she fled to the south, escaping the assaults of the Valar and the hunters of Orome, for their vigilance had ever been to the north and the south was long unheeded. Thence she had crept toward the light of the blessed realm, for she hungered for light and hated it. In a ravine she lived and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom until no light more could come to her abode, and she was famished. Now, that last point I, I emphasize because I, I was really picking up, for whatever reason, the mention of that is, it's the first like clear mention of like, what I would describe as like a form of gluttony that that you're getting um, in, in that Ungoliant is is gluttonous. She eats all of this light because it's he's saying that she's literally eating the light and then spinning it into these webs of darkness. But uh, she's gluttonous because she eats all of it and it's still, and she was famished, right? She's never satiated. It's never enough. That then brought to mind the earlier mention of Melkor's lust. Uh, for the Silmarils, and of course in this passage, Ungoliant is also described as lustful of, of light. But I was kind of thinking, okay, uh, there there may be something there to to mapping some of the sins, because Ungoliant is like very clearly per portrayed as being uh, gluttonous. Melkor is described as being both lustful, and in this passage itself, he's described as being envious. It says when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwë, right? He uses, it's not even just me jumping to a conclusion. Those words are literally used, lost in envy, to describe Melkor. And of course, Feanor is prideful. Feanor is uh, greedy. What are the other two? Wrath and uh, sloth. Wrath, can I think, can also describe Melkor. Sloth, I, I wasn't... No, Sloth Sloth is also not really a negative in in uh, the Legendarium. No, because, well, it's sort of... Sloth is the sort of sign of a, uh, you know, of, of sort of bourgeois success, right? Just like Bilbo. Yeah. But nonetheless, this was not necessarily... Certainly not intentional, I wouldn't think, on Tolkien's part. But just something that I noticed that just in these few short pages, you get these, like, almost, like, ideals of some of these characteristics like uh the glut gluttony to describe Ungoliant, i can't think of a better word honestly because he he keeps emphasizing that no matter how much light that she eats she just wants more that's a that's a great observation i would not have made that connection so basically he comes to Ungoliant and he's like listen i know that you don't really like me anymore because you wanted to go off on your own right because it says that Ungoliant left and uh because she wanted to be her own uh, her own master um he's like i get that but I know how much you love to eat light. And uh, then we have we have this passage, which, again, uses the word lust. Um, 
Quote, but when Ungoliant understood the purpose of Melkor, she was torn between lust and great fear, for she was loath to dare the perils of Amon and the power of the dreadful lords, and she would not stir from her hiding. And then it, it continues, therefore Melkor said to her, do as I bid, and if thou hunger still when all is done, then I will give thee whatsoever thy lust may demand. Another thing that I, I love in here, and it doesn't, it, and it sort of matters for the themes. I mean, it does, but I really just love the the phrasing and the prose is when Tolkien writes, A cloak of darkness she wove about them when Melkor and Ungoliant set forth, an unlight in which things seemed to be no more, and which eyes could not pierce, for it was a void. And it's one word, and it's capitalized, and it's it's just great. Yeah, I I, I love I love that too. It's a, a you know a proper noun. The the unlight that that Ungoliant is able to it, it you know it's it's almost like more than an invisibility cloak. Almost it's almost like a a spot of darkness. And so they you know they they set off. Uh, I don't, is it stated that Melkor is riding on her back? Because I always picture it that way. I don't think it's stated, but that's also how I imagine it. They, uh, they, they ride into, uh, uh, to the Undying Lands. And meanwhile, in the Undying Lands, in, in Amon, they're having a harvest festival, which, uh, Tolkien, because of his, you know, field of study would have been certainly well aware that that is just one thing that like every human civilization ever has <laughs> has independent independently developed. It's also funny. This is one of the examples, one of the few examples of something not really making sense in the <laughs> in the logic of the world he's building, and him just sort of like like waving it away with some like contrived explanation. Yeah, for why everyone's all together. Yeah, which is which is that even though. Uh, there's no like winter and the seasons are controlled by the Valar. Um, Yavanna still set specific times for flowering and ripening, ripening of things that just happens to culminate in a, um, sort of autumn harvest festival esque time of year. Um, even though there's no reason for that to happen. And also the day night cycle doesn't really exist and Telperion and, and, Lurlin and you know the trees are waxing and waning constantly and there's no like seasonal change in light amounts she just sets this uh so that he can he can get the harvest festival in there because i mean the sun and the moon aren't around yet right it's just the trees yeah and this isn't even a criticism i like it his work is so absent of that like <sighs> like i feel like like world building is so like glorified um today by like people who read like a lot of contemporary fantasy and i like some contemporary fantasy but i feel like nine and a half times out of ten like great world building is actually just like contrived extra details with some exceptions for certain things that i really like and think do it well but i do sometimes like that sort of unnecessary doesn't really make sense world building where you're just sort of throwing something in there from human civilization but yeah my my take on it, I think, is that I think a, a criticism of Tolkien that I've, I think, encountered in the past, uh, but that I have, like, it's a criticism that I have myself, is that I wish that there were more descriptions of just how, like, regular people, like, went about their day. I I know what you mean, but I almost sort of like that that isn't there, because every other good piece of fantasy 
and not even just like high fantasy, but like like fantastical fiction in general that is good, I think does that. Something that I like in Tolkien that I also like in a lot of like uh, Hayao Miyazaki movies is you get glimpses of like day-to-day life, like in the bathhouse and Spirited Away, there's like glimpses of day-to-day life, but what all the visitors and all the spirits do is never really explained. And I, I sort of like that. I don't think most writers can pull that off, but I think the ones that can, like Tolkien or Miyazaki, although it's obviously a lot different, um, I think do it really well. I hear you. And I also think that it's part of Tolkien's, I mean, we've talked about it in the past, Tolkien's, some of his worldview that it's like, no, what's important is like what the kings are doing. Yeah. And I also think that, I mean, and we, we've brought this up before, he extended that over to himself. He thought that what he was doing in his like day job, although he cared about it a lot, was in the grand scheme of things unimportant. Right. Yep. And certainly unimportant for people like us to talk about, like as it relates to his work. Yes. When I said day job, I meant like his like actual like, I know you meant knew this, but I'm clarifying that for the listener, like his actual day job of like doing research on like Middle English in like the West Midlands. Right. And teaching. And teaching that that research. Yeah. Where we are right now, Ungoliant and Melkor are coming over to Valinor and to, to Amman. Meanwhile, in Amman, they're having a, the Harvest Festival that we talked about. And uh, who shows up but Feanor? Feanor, who has cast himself out of Amman. Uh, Finway and Feanor's seven sons do not come. It is just Feanor. I'm going to read uh, this, this passage here. Feanor came not in raiment of festival, and he wore no ornament, neither silver nor gold nor any gem, and he denied the sight of the Silmarils to the Valar and the Aldar, and left them locked in Formanos in their chamber of iron. Nevertheless, he met Fingolfin before the throne of Manwë, and was reconciled in word, and Fingolfin set at naught the unsheathing of the sword. For Fingolfin held forth his hand, saying, As I promised, I do now. I release thee, and remember no grievance. Then Feanor took his hand in silence, but Fingolfin said, Half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart will I be. Thou shalt lead, and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. I hear thee, said Feanor. So be it. But they did not know the meaning that their words would bear. And again, I just get, it's, it's so cinematic that this, like, you can imagine, it's almost like a cliche that they're having this conversation and it's this beautiful moment and then they, like, hear a noise or, like, someone screams and they kind of, like, look and then it's like, oh, shit, Melkor and Ungolian are here. <laughs> I agree. I also get this strong, like, image in my head. And then, and then it doesn't say it, but, like, you know that the scene would be interrupted by someone like a, a woman screaming outside. Like it doesn't say yeah. that, but like that's how it would happen in the in the movie or film adaptation. Um, and of course, uh, the reason is because uh, Ungoliant and Melkor have arrived. This is an incredible passage with, um, I think, one of my favorite. Uh, we always say it's one of our favorites, but but how this passage ends, I think, is it, it is it's sort of the flip side of what we were talking about earlier. With Feanor doesn't know like sort of the the can of worms he's opening by creating the Silmarils. I think 
you get a sense at the end of this passage that Melkor doesn't understand what he's unleashing or, or what he's wrought in some sense. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read uh, this passage. In that very hour, Melkor and Ungoliant came hastening over the fields of Valinor as the shadow of a black cloud upon the wind fleets over the sunlit earth, and they came before the green mound Ezelahar. Then the unlight of Ungoliant rose up even to the roots of the trees, and Melkor sprang upon the mound, and with his black spear he smote each tree to its core, wounded them deep, and their sap poured forth as it were their blood, and was spilled upon the ground. But Ungoliant sucked it up, and going then from tree to tree, she set her black beak to their wounds till they were drained, and the poison of death that was in her went into their tissues and withered them root branch and leaf, and they died. And still she thirsted, and going to the wells of Varda, she drank them dry, but Ungoliant belched forth black vapors as she drank, and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that Melkor was afraid. And this is followed by Ungoliant and Melkor fleeing, and then you know what's going to happen next. The earth shook beneath the horses of the host of Orme. Tulkas and Orme are pursuing them, but uh, Orme and his host are blinded um, by the cloud, the, that cloud of vapors that Ungoliant released, and Tulkas is caught in a black net, and it's uh, too late, and um, Melkor's vengeance was achieved, and that's how the chapter ends. Yeah, and so that's that's where we're gonna where we're gonna end today on uh, at least in in terms of the reading. But but yeah, so at this point now the the trees are are no more. Ungolian ate them all up, and and again to to drive home the point about her gluttony, it says you know he that she drank all of the sap from the trees, and yet still she thirsted. Uh, nothing is ever enough. Uh, for for Ungoliant. and um, and and going back to one of like the most basic you know Tolkien observations, which anyone who even watches the movies realizes upon first viewing, is his veneration for nature. Yep, and that the holy objects are trees, and this great calamity is the trees being destroyed. You know, Tolkien, sort of a Lorax esque figure, <laughs> yeah. is uh, unable to stop this calamity. And that's a joke, but also like not totally. No, no, I, I, I totally agree. Like, I don't, I, I actually don't think that Tor- Tolkien as being a Lorax type figure is like is is that on inaccurate? You know, no, because it's it's trying to protect the trees, but thinking that you're gonna fail, um, and sort of knowing you're gonna fail and being mournful about it, but not self pitying. We maintain that if 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 Tolkien were were alive now, he would be some form of eco terrorist. Yes. Maybe not. He was too conservative to actually. I feel. I think he would. I think he would be distraught and upset. But then he would just kind of brood about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he would actually uh, do any direct action. Maybe he would. I don't know. Uh, I can't really picture him at a protest, though. No, he definitely wouldn't. So anyway, Sam, do you have any uh, any any final points? We were ending on a somber note. The trees are no more. I don't. I don't really think so. I think I got got everything out there. Well, it's always great to talk to you. Um, we have, I think, some good stuff uh, planned for you. We've been doing a lot of reading uh, for, uh, for, for our next few episodes, so uh, keep an eye out for those. Um, yeah, I think that's it. So we will uh, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Yep, bye.
podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.